Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Human relationships are fragile. Many of you who are here, many of you have parents who've divorced, maybe when you were young. And at that time, you felt how fragile relationships can be. Many of you right now have family members that you haven't spoken to in a long time for various reasons. You have a best friend who moves away, or what's much worse, maybe you have a falling out with a good friend. Churches split, coworkers quit, neighbors move, friends and family, even if you have good relationships, eventually pass away. Human relationships are very fragile. And yet, it was not in some other universe, but in this universe, that Jesus our shepherd and our savior prayed this for us. That we might become perfectly one so that the world would know that God sent Jesus. So in a world like ours, we could just surrender ourselves to the pessimism that says relationships never work out and that's just how it is. So we could isolate ourselves or put up our barriers or defend ourselves, however you like to do that, so that you're safe and not hurt. The problem with that is it is a betrayal of the very prayer of our Savior. Jesus did not pray that we would be three or four or five or six separate entities, (laughs) but his prayer for us in this world, this messy world, his prayer is that we would be one. Jesus was not some young, blind idealist who just didn't have enough experience of the world to know that that doesn't work out. And so he was hoping for some great ideal that's simply unrealistic. No, who is Jesus? He himself, the scripture says, knows what is in man, even while he was on earth. Knows what is in us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what life here is like. He knows human relationships are fragile because we're messy. He knows that. Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. And it's his word coming out his mouth in prayer saying, God, my desire for them is oneness. How many of you who are in this room came to Christ maybe primarily, because you're coming out of the cold world of broken, messy relationships, of betrayals where no one seemed to have any lingering loyalty for anyone else. It was all selfishness and power plays. And you came into a group of genuine, born-again Christians, and they actually loved each other. And you saw a sort of a unity, not perfect, but you saw a sort of a unity among these people. That may have been the primary thing God used to spark in your own mind, an interest in the gospel. Because then you want to know, well, I want that. What's happening in this group of people that leads to that? 
The sort of unity that you see in the whole Western world right now, gathering together behind Ukraine and its conflict, that's what God intended for Christians to be, to have a greater unity even than that together on a common mission. Not in some other idealized world, but in this world, in the world that you live in. It's not Christ's revealed will for the church that we should be fighting with one another over matters of secondary and usually tertiary, third-level importance. That wasn't Christ's intention. You see that in his prayer. He wants a oneness. So it wasn't Christ's intention that these are things that have really happened. In one case, church members fought and left their church because they changed the Sunday morning coffee to a stronger blend. It was not Christ's intention that in another church there was a church split because one of the members hid the vacuum cleaner from the others. Another church had a conflict because one person thought no one should be allowed to wear black to church because that's the color of the devil. And another church had a genuine conflict over whether we should be allowed to bring deviled eggs to the church potluck. And another church had a conflict over whether it should be called a potluck because there's no such thing as luck. This wasn't when Christ established his church, what he intended the church to be. <laughs> this is what we sometimes make it in this world. And so here we are, and we have to choose, all of us, what kind of a fellowship this local body is going to be. We're not going to tolerate doctrinal error, especially matters of first importance. We saw that. In all of chapter 3, Paul doesn't tolerate that either. We're not going to tolerate ongoing clear matters of sin. Jesus in Matthew 18 made clear we don't tolerate that. We deal with that. We don't say whatever. We deal with that. So that's not what we're talking about. But most of our conflicts have nothing to do with those things or very little. Most of our conflicts is because I bug you and you bug me and you bug each other. And someone annoys you and someone snubs you. Or someone disagrees on something, and then a conflict emerges. And we have to decide what we're going to do about that. You can choose that as a body, we're just going to ignore that. We're not going to deal with that because that's awkward. And we will all explode or fall apart. <laughs> but there's another op option open to us, and it's the one that's presented to us today in this text. For Paul, as he's moving now from the false teachers of chapter 3 into the final chapter of Philippians, beautiful chapter, chapter 4, he is now going to address an actual, real-life conflict in the church in Philippi. They had it back then, too. And if we want to have unity as a body of believers, we can have it. I promise. We can. But we're going to have to adopt the attitude that Paul has when he's facing conflict in the local church. So let's see what that attitude is as we begin chapter 4, the first three verses. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand Firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women 
who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul wants for the church in Philippi the same thing Jesus wants. Jesus prays that they may be one. The way Paul puts it is he wants them to agree in the Lord. Is that what you want for this local church? It has to be. Jesus wants it. Paul wants it. Your Bible wants it. God wants it. We need to want it. That's why we have this passage of Scripture in front of us this morning. Paul has spent an entire chapter, as I said, in chapter 3, begging you not to unite with false teachers. But now in chapter 4, he's going to be begging you to make sure you do unite with genuine believers with whom you may have disagreements on secondary or third-level matters. This world, ever since the fall back in Eden, the eating of the forbidden fruit, is now not horizontal, but it's really on a slope. And all of us feel it. And what this means is that when you're living your life, if you just let gravity have its way, if you just default your way through the Christian life, what's going to happen is you're not going to stand, stand firm, you're not going to do that. You are going to slide down into conflict. You're going to fight. It's the way life is. For all of us, there's no exceptions. Even those of you who are so super nice, thank you for being so super nice. But even for you, this is the natural direction of the human heart. Even after we come to know Christ, sadly, gravity in this broken, messy world pulls us down toward conflict. And if you don't do anything about it, then you will be fighting. It's just how it goes. We don't naturally get along. We supernaturally get along. And what we're going to see in this passage is that you can supernaturally get along in a wonderful way, but it will require you to adopt the attitude that Paul has in this text. And if you like outlines, that makes it easier for you to think about, we'll consider this attitude of Paul under two headings. One, if you want unity, it's going to require affection. Number two, if you want unity, it's going to require effort. Affection and effort. So let's see that here in this very practical text. First, by remembering that according to this passage, if you want unity in this local church, it's not going to happen apart from us fostering in ourselves affection. This is pretty obvious, I think, in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, just for good measure, my beloved. So this verse is transitional, and you see that in the very first word, right? Therefore. He is building on what he said in chapter 3, and that was the warning against the Judaizing false teachers, those worldly-minded, circumcising false teachers all of three was warning against that, and so here he gives a therefore because he's saying, listen, I'm warning you, don't go with them. Instead, stand firm right where you are. But what's really amazing is that it seems like what he's going to say next in chapter 4 is already spinning in his mind because stand firm almost gets lost in this verse. It takes a while to get to it because he's piling up affectionate terms toward the Philippians. 
my brothers, I love you. I long for you. You're my joy. You're my crown. You're my beloved. You even see something of his affection as we'll get into verse 2, because he doesn't demand, stop fighting. <laughs> but instead, it's an, an entreating. And I ask you, it's his affection for the Philippians that is absolutely clear in this, both verse 1, this transition, and in our entire passage here, that there is a genuine affection. So what is it that we learn from that? That as Paul is getting himself ready to transition from stay away from false teachers, into this appeal for unity, what comes into his mind over and over and over again is his love and his warmth toward the Philippian saints. That's not accidental. Because if you want unity in a local church, it is going to require this kind of affection that you find in Paul. Are you going to do great battle with another saint over the color of the bathroom walls if at the same time that very saint is dear to your heart. You love them and you long for them and you consider them, to begin here in our text, my brother or sister. Can you see their one there? You and I are part of the family of God. So here's the first part of your attitude toward believers sitting around you right now. And I'm sure most of you are all getting along, but you might have a few in here you're not getting along with. That's life. So it is. So here's how you now need to think about that person. Don't look at them. Don't look at them. <laughs> Don't make it awkward. But here's how you need to think about that person right now. First, my brother or sister. Now, not all of you grew up in a functional family, but don't transfer that over into this term. When Paul talks about believers as my brothers or my sisters, he's talking about a functional family of God. One where there is mutual love, where blood really is thicker than water, where there's a sense of allegiance and loyalty and commitment to each other. That's what he thinks of at the Philippians. My brothers and sisters. Even Euodia and Syntyche that we're going to get to in a second who are causing problems for Paul by not being united somehow. Paul thinks of them as sisters. Older brother, protective of his sisters, loves his sisters. That's how you have to think of other believers, those sitting here, even those that you have some beef or some problem with. You need that kind of affection. He goes on and he says, here's your attitude toward them whom I love and long for. And then at the end, he just throws it in again because he can't stop himself. My beloved. Is it possible for you to go home and meditate day and night upon a perceived slight that you've received from a brother or a sister here in this fellowship? Can you think on it, think on it, and sink lower and lower down into the pot of boiling bitterness while at the same time the person who slighted you Say, I love them, and I long for them. Do those coexist together? <laughs> no. It's like putting the lid on the candle while the thing is burning. If you put the lid on, the oxygen's gone, and the light goes out. If you, so you got to decide what the lid's going to be. If you feel a great love, longing, if you remember the love and the affection you feel toward this other believer who slighted you, if you stick that on, then that light of Bitterness just goes out. But alternatively, 
If you choose bitterness as the lid instead, and you decide to dwell and dwell and dwell on it, then that love and affection also goes out. But you understand, you choose what you're going to think about this person. Sorry. It's your choice, okay? If this is a genuine believer that you're having a conflict with, well, certainly you're probably thinking a lot of the bad things about this person because those are most dominant to you right now because of the inconvenience that's been caused to you by them. However, is there nothing good about them? Is there nothing you love about them? Even if it's just that they are a child of God in the same family with you, is there nothing to long for in that person? Then you need to start making the choice because this is what Paul does. Paul is going to write about these women who are bickering in the church. And he could say, my thorns in the flesh. Woe to me, my cross that I must bear, these women who are fighting. No, whom I love and long for. That's how he chooses to think of them. That's how we have to choose to think of each other. Look as he goes on. Do you think of the believer you're fighting with as my joy? <laughs> no, you probably don't. But that's how Paul thinks of the saints, even the ones causing him issues. My joy. What we find in Hebrews 13, 17 is about church leaders or elders, but a principle goes beyond eldership. There, the author says, let your leaders keep watch over your souls, quote, with joy and not with groaning, because that would be no advantage to you. You should think of other saints in the fellowship as a source of joy, even if they're inconvenient sometimes. But they are a source of joy to you. Just like the psalmist says, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. There are seasons where you probably come to church on a Sunday morning feeling burdened and weighty and sorrow because there's tension in relationships. Can we admit it? Okay, I know it's not perfect paradise here. So this happens. So there are seasons where you may come to church feeling a burden because of tensions that you have with believers who are in this fellowship. And that happens. But over the long haul, our sense with the saints should be that the saints bring us joy. They're not our source of sorrow. Sometimes they are. But Paul calls them my joy. Believers are to be a source of joy to each other. Not just because we're always easy to get along with, but because we're in the same family. We're heading in the same direction. We have the same Father. We are guided by the same Spirit. We read the same Scriptures. And so there should be a sense of joy that we feel with each other. This is part of why Jesus is so adamant in the Gospels that if you have conflict with a believer, you need to go deal with that right now. Leave your sacrifice on the altar. Go deal with that right now because the fellowship is not meant to be a place where there's all these tensions. It's meant to be a place where tension arises and you deal with it insofar as it depends on you so that you can go on having the saints be your joy. And notice here in Paul's affection for the saints, he also calls them my that's a little unusual, but he explains himself in his letter to the Thessalonians like this. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? 
is it not you? And what Paul means here is that his labors to help benefit and build the Philippian church, when Jesus comes, Paul is going to say, this is the work that I've done. And just like all of us, Paul receives a reward, not salvation, you don't earn it, but there are rewards that will be given for the labors that we do. So when you have other saints in the body who are an inconvenience to you because they have problems, and you wish they didn't have problems. Well, guess what? If they didn't have problems, you've got no reason to be here. God has put you in the local body to solve those problems. You are here as an agent of helping other people grow in holiness. So yes, while you're doing that, it can be very inconvenient to you. But that's why you're here. Paul looks at the Philippians and doesn't think, oh, these problems. He thinks, I'm going to work for your good I'd rather depart and be with Christ, but I'm going to stay here for your benefit because you need me to help you to grow. And on the last day, I'm not going to point and say, glad to be done with these problems. I'm going to point and say, these were the people who are my crown because I labored to help them grow in Christ. This is the sort of affection that we have to feel for each other if there's going to be any sense of unity here in the body of Christ. Unity is not just a matter of here are the three, four, five steps that you take when you come in conflict with someone else. Those steps are helpful. Look at Matthew 18, church discipline, Jesus gives some. But unity is more than just the steps we take. Unity begins with the attitude you have in your own heart toward other believers. Not just the ones here, but just in general, believers. Do you think of believers mainly as an inconvenience to your life and your plans because they're messy? Or do you think of believers as your delight? These are your people in this hostile world. This should, Lord willing, feel like a place of safety, of stability in your relationships with each other. You know what it's like when you have a relationship with someone and there is a sense of affection. It gives you this freedom because perfect love casts out fear and that applies here too. You come into that relationship, you see that person and there's this mutual understanding because there's this affection, you really genuinely love each other and then you feel a sort of freedom where you know you don't have to do everything perfectly. You're gonna try to, but you're not gonna do everything perfectly and that's okay, they'll tell you, you know, but in a loving way. There's a mutual commitment to each other Ideally, a marriage works this way. Ideally, it's not always this way. But you notice that in a marriage, God designed it so that first you make the covenant saying, I'm never leaving. And it's only really after that you find out who you've married. <laughs> and that's on purpose because now you're in a context where there's stability, safety, because there's affection in that commitment. This local church should have a sense of unity that grows out of our affection for each other. Listen, please keep growing in the Lord, but you don't have to do it perfectly for me to be 100% committed to you as your friend and your pastor and co-laborer in the gospel. If you've got an issue, I'll come talk to you. If i got an issue, you come talk to me. But it's this affection we have that we are in this together, sink or swim. You can see this affection even after verse 1 because see verses 2 and 3 again here. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you 
also, true companion, help these women. Notice when he goes on right from there, help these women, how does he describe the women who are causing him a problem, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When Paul thinks of these women who are causing him a problem at a distance by fighting in the church, he thinks, yeah, but they've labored with me in the gospel. That's the way he's thinking about them. You understand that he could make the choice to think about the problems they're causing. He knows them, but he doesn't. That instead he makes the choice to think about his past with these women. They've labored with him in the gospel. And he makes that choice. He stops and remembers who he's dealing with. And this is true for us. If we want to have unity here, then when you start getting into a conflict with someone, you have to be able to step back because you're probably in the shower having that mental debate that you always win with this person, imagining how you should say this and they'll say this and you win. So you're focused and fixated on the issue itself and how you're right. But what Paul does here is he takes a step back and just remembers actually who he's dealing with, who the people actually are. Not, am I right, but who are these people? And he remembers that even though now they're causing issues for the gospel by their conflict, yet these are faithful Christian women. Paul is not looking at them as if they are the great spawn of the devil, the enemy incarnate of the gospel. He saw that in chapter 3. That's not these women. These are believers with problems. That's very different than false teachers. It's the same way if you want to eradicate a disease, you're going to do it in a very different way if you're eradicating it in a rat or if you're eradicating it in your child. If you're dealing with a rat, you kill it, <laughs> sorry. But if you're dealing with your child, you don't do that. Instead, with gentleness, you're doing whatever it takes to get the disease to go away. Not the child to go away, but the disease. Because you feel affection for the child and not for the rat. When you are having conflict with the believer, and those of you who are having it right now, you have to be able to stop and say, I'm not dealing with a rat. I'm dealing with my child, I'm dealing with someone I should love who labors and has labored with me in the gospel. Remember back maybe years ago where you were side by side excited? Maybe you had a great relationship and you were laboring together and there was immense joy in it and that sense has maybe soured. What Paul does is he steps back and remembers that. That he's dealing with people he feels affectionate toward. Yodi and Syntyche are not enemies of each other, of Paul, of the church, of the gospel. They're just Christians in conflict. Now, you might want to know, what were they fighting about? I don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't ever tell us. We don't know anything else about Yodia or Syntyche or their conflict or Clement. We don't know much about any of these people here. But you can just imagine something. Euodia, she's convinced that drums and the rhythm that come with drums are not to be a part of the pure worship of God, that they have some connection with demonism or something else. This has been an issue in churches, drums. She's convinced of it. 
And Cynthia Kay, she loves drums. She just feels worshipful when they're played and feels like they ought to be. And that's what's happening in the culture. And we can do that and separate it from the rock and roll culture. We can just do the drums. But Yodia now thinks that Syntyche is compromising the pure worship of God by bringing those demon items into the church. And now Syntyche feels like Yodia is a legalist. And she's actually compromising the gospel by her legalistic demands. You see that dynamic? <laughs> You've experienced that, maybe not, not with drums, but with something. Most of the conflicts that we experience with each other are not first-level conflicts that have to do with heresy. Denying the Trinity. That's heresy. And we deal with that very quickly, very severely, to protect the purity of the gospel. Most of our conflicts aren't there. Most of our conflicts aren't always even on a secondary level where it's not heresy, but it's incredibly important for doctrine. Let's be honest, most of our conflicts are somewhere second down to third level, like the drums, where it's something we may feel strongly about, but it's a matter of wisdom. It's a matter of discernment. But what we tend to do is, in our passion for our position, we take that down from the third level, and in our zeal and passion that drums are of the devil, we start pushing it up the pyramid, and now it's into the second level, and eventually you can shove it up into the first, and you hear cries of heresy come out. Really, it's just, you know, Yodia doesn't like drums, or it's a wisdom matter that she has. This is the way conflict functions most of the time in the local church. You saw this earlier, and in some places still, maybe some of you have a background with the King James only. Very similar experience. Uh, those who adamantly felt like the King James Bible is the only pure English translation of the Bible. It had been used by Christians, faithful Christians, for hundreds of years. And then there was liberal scholarship in the 1800s, coming out of Germany, challenging the King James Bible and trying to bring about new translations. So you can understand why earlier in the 1900s, faithful Christians thought, uh-oh, there's a danger here. They weren't wrong. But now we're far enough removed to know that don't embrace the liberal ideas coming out of Germany in the mid-1800s. Those are heretical and false. And yet some of their criticisms were fine, that we have more manuscripts and that language changes. And so now, very few of us are using the King James, and we're not heretics for it. Love the King James, by the way, but we're not heretics to not use it. But what happened is someone really liked the King James. It was a wisdom matter of biblical interpretation, and it got pushed up and up and up and up the pyramid until you can't even be a Christian if you don't use the King James that Paul used. And that's the way that all of our... He didn't use it. It's a joke. That's the way that all of our conflicts, most of our conflicts in the church develop. What's going to protect us from this passion-fueled escalation of issues on matters of wisdom is doing what Paul does. Step back, light the little match under your cold heart and get that affection burning in there and remember, oh, this isn't an enemy of the gospel this is the person I've labored side by side with in the gospel. This is the person on the same level as Clement, whoever he may have been, and the rest of my fellow workers together with me. Their names are written in the book of life. That's who I'm dealing with. Not the spawn of Satan. You have to remind yourself of this 
that this person, even if their face looks angry in this conflict, that's a friend. That's not an enemy. That's a friend. So if you want unity in the church, as you can see in this passage, it's first and foremost going to require affection. But like I said at the beginning, there's more in this passage. And that is, not just affection is needed, but effort. See verse 1 again. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We know that that stand firm usually is telling you don't give in to false teaching. And even in verse 1, that's what he's saying. Stand firm thus, reference to chapter 3. However, do you remember in chapter 1, the only other time in this letter that he says stand firm, how he worded it. He said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm... So no false doctrine. But how does he describe standing firm here in chapter 1? In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the furtherance of the gospel. To Paul, standing firm involves not giving in to false teaching, but that's only standing firm with one foot. The other foot involves our unity. You cannot stand firm if you are not united with believers. The best example I can give is many of you have read works by the great writer, Christian thinker, A.W. Pink. He was in the last century, he's passed away, and he's written some very great works. But many of you are probably aware that in his own life, he pastored church after church after church, couldn't quite settle anywhere. In the last 12 years of his life, he didn't go to church because he couldn't find any that weren't worldly. He couldn't find any that met his very, 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 very high standards of what a pure church was. So Sunday mornings, he would just be at home by himself, didn't welcome tons of visitors, and would just write. Well, we're glad he wrote, but please don't do that. <laughs> really, A.W. Pink stood firm, about as firm as you can stand, doctrinally. But sadly, it was only with one foot, because he did not stand firm in one spirit. It requires an effort, a standing firm, for us to be united. It's something, it's a part of what standing firm means. If you look at these next verses, you see the same thing. I entreat you, Odia. I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And, yes, I ask you also, true companion, we don't know who that is, sorry, somebody, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel. What Paul does not say is, oh dear, Yodia and Syntyche who appear to be important women in this church. They're not in leadership. That is, they're not elders, because Paul elsewhere forbids that. But the very beginning of the Philippian church saw Lydia as one of the first converts welcoming Christians into her home. So even from the beginning, women were an important part of the Philippian church, just as they are in ours. 
So here's two women, probably somewhat prominent in the church. They're not getting along. And what Paul doesn't say is like, whoop, don't touch that because that could explode. You just let that go. Let it fizzle out and just hope that it doesn't explode. That's not his counsel. Not whatsoever. His counsel begins with Yodi and Syntyche themselves. This letter would originally have been read to the whole Philippian congregation. So there's poor Yodi and Syntyche standing there in the audience hearing this. And he's entreating them directly. I'm entreating you that you need to do something. You need to agree in the Lord. And that's not even enough because then he focuses the letter on whoever he's writing to. I don't know who. Someone who is his yoke fellow, his companion, and saying, and I want you to come alongside these women and do something also. I want you to mediate. I want you to help them to agree in the Lord. Help these women is what he says. Help them to be one. Sometimes we want to make peace by what Ken Sandy calls peace faking, which is if you just smile really big and pretend there's not a conflict, then maybe there's not. <laughs> Newsflash, there still is. So we have to deal with conflict, and that's what Paul's saying here. If it's a minor snub, a minor conflict, cover it in love. But anything you can't cover in love, leave that bullock, leave that goat, leave whatever it is there on the altar, and you need to go and deal with it now. And if you see others who are having a conflict, it's a big risk. You might blow things up if you get involved, but you have to get involved. That's just what Paul's saying. It's a team project for us to live in unity and resolve conflicts. So, brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Can we be unlike the rest of the world, which right now is so fragile, relationships so tenuous? Can this be a place of stability where you can come and know that people are going to actually know you and not crush you for it, but help you grow with an affection that just wraps around you as soon as you walk in the doors? Can we be that sort of a local body that Paul is envisioning for the Philippians? Yes, or the Bible's not true. This is what Christ prayed for his church. This is what Paul asks of the church, that we would be a place of unity filled with affection and an effort to live in unity. This is going to mean that you, yourself, in conflict, are going to have to be able to step back and remember who you're dealing with. You are going to have to not leave this turkey in the oven and let it bubble up when you're having a conflict with someone, but you're going to have to turn that off and go deal with the issue that you're facing. You yourself are sometimes going to have to let others get their way and just bite the bullet and do it with joy. You yourself are sometimes going to have to take the snub and return a blessing on the other person's head. You are sometimes going to have to jump into a messy conflict that other people are having, and sometimes it's going to backfire on you, and you're going to get the accusations, and you're going to have to keep doing that nonetheless for the sake of trying to help mediate. You will have to take the risk of making things worse by trying to make them better. You will have to put in the effort, if you're Euodia, to go and talk to Syntyche and ask good questions and try to understand where she's coming from before you write her off as heretic. 
you will have to put in the effort sometimes if you can't resolve issues to bring in an elder or another mediator to help you resolve the issues. You're going to have to not ignore the problem, but deal with it. Maybe you think that's a lot to ask. We're not going to aim for anything less than the full answer of Jesus' prayer that we may be perfectly one. Let's pray. Jesus, our highest hope right now in our unity as a body is not in our incredible ability or our immense maturity, but we have a great hope because you prayed this. And today, Jesus, you are seated at the side of your Father, and Scripture says you are still praying for us. And I know that among the things you pray for us must certainly be that they may be perfectly one. Jesus, I pray that, however mysteriously this works, you would receive the reward of your sufferings. For you died to bring Jew and Gentile together, but more than that, to bring all your people together in a bond of love to reflect the inner workings of the Trinity itself. And I pray you would have the reward of your sufferings and the answer of your prayer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.